Romans chapter 6. In 2006, there was a book that was released called Mindset. It was kind of a a major substantial work by a world-renowned Stanford University psychologist, her name Dr. Carol Dweck. She'd been for decades studying individuals, and she landed upon a very simple idea that seemed to make really all the difference in a person's life. She actually could categorize people in two major categories. The first is those who had a fixed mindset. And the person, people with fixed mindsets, they believe that intelligence and talent are fixed traits. They're like set in stone. It's like once they've been given, they're established. You really can't get better than that. It's just who you are. And a lot of people that are, have fixed mindsets, they spend time trying to document their intelligence or their talent. They also believe that success lies in simply talent alone. And that people that are successful in whatever arena, whether it be athletic, academics, uh, music, sports, whatever, it doesn't matter, they believe that they actually can do it without a lot of effort. It's simply fixed. And a lot of people have a fixed mindset in life. On the other hand, though, she said there is another group of people. These are the people that rise to the fullness of their potential. They're the ones that seemingly accomplish great things. And she identifies this group of people as those who have a growth mindset. And they, the people with growth mindset, they recognize that there's a certain intelligence they might have, certain gifts, talents that they can do, have, and things they can do. However, they believe that that is just the starting point and that you actually continue to grow and develop and mature and through effort and education and hard work uh, and environment, you can actually flourish and your potential is rather unknown. In fact, it can't be defined. And so, now, she's not saying that you could do whatever you want, and all of her research, but what she is saying is that when you look at people like Helen Keller or Condoleezza Rice or Einstein or Edison or Michael Jordan or Beethoven, these are people that have a growth mindset. What they have been given in intellect, talents, abilities, is merely the starting point for a lifestyle and a life of growing and understanding and focusing on improvement. If you're a fixed mindset person, you're always trying to establish just how good you are and try to kind of hold ground. But if you're a growth mindset person, you're always growing. You want to learn. And it's, you understand that. For some of you, this is new information. Others of you are like, man, I understand completely what you're talking about. And we understand that in terms of academics, sports, careers, People that have growth mindsets, they're the ones that rise in the ranks because they're always learning and growing. They're not afraid of making mistakes, but they're going to learn from those mistakes. We, we, we understand this in pretty much every arena, except it seems with the exception of our spiritual lives. It seems like most Christians are stuck in a fixed mindset. They're like, well, this is just as good as it gets. I can never grow or improve. And that is absolutely not the case. In fact, as we're going through the book of Romans, when we hit Romans chapter 6, he is establishing the great need for believers in Christ to have a growth mindset. The idea of growing and maturing and flourishing and to become all that you can be in Christ. And the question is, well, how in the world do you do that? What does a growth mindset look like in the life of a Christian? If you want to understand what that looks like and how to go about it, you're going to want to make chapter 6 of Romans, especially verses 11 through 14, you're going to want to own this and you want to know them. For some of you, this passage, small though it will be, is going to be a game changer for you. Look at verse 11. He says, 
Even so, and this is just kind of a refresher from what we covered last week. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is really a summary of what we looked at last week. Remember, like in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Or look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And this is what makes a person a Christian. They literally believe upon Christ and they are actually united with him. So much so that Paul uses his favorite phrase to talk about this union when he says, you are in Christ Jesus. And now, this is different than any other religion. Uh, Like a Muslim, no matter how ardent they are, they never consider themselves in Muhammad or in Allah. Or a Buddhist never actually considers themselves to be in Buddha. Or Hindus never actually believe that they are in their particular gods. They're trying to appease them, maybe possibly manipulate them, certainly want to try to keep them happy, but they never believe that they're in them or that that God has taken up residency in their life. Christianity, the one true faith, is literally when you believe upon Christ, not only are you legally declared right, just, but there is a transformation that takes place because you're literally united with him. His death becomes your death. His resurrection life literally is your resurrection life. And so he says in verse 11, think of yourselves this way. You are dead to sin. That pervasive love, that domineering, ruling power of sin, it no longer owns you. You are dead to sin. Why? Because you are, verse 11, you've been made alive in Christ. We believe we shall also live with him. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have the ability to fulfill his will, and we have the pleasure of knowing relationship with him because we're now alive in Christ. Now, if you see yourself as a self-centered sinner, and you're just kind of walking through life like, it's just one problem after another, what you need to do is recognize you have a completely new orientation. You are now a Christ-centered individual, and you're oriented to God. You are literally a new creature in Christ. When you hear about being dead to sin, that doesn't mean that you have to even feel like you're dead to sin, because there are times you're going to feel rather alive to the whole subject. You don't even have to fully understand the concept of being dead to sin and alive to Christ. But you are required to believe. And we live and we act upon faith because it's a matter of faith that issues these kind of actions. And so remember what we talked about last week? I want you, whatever sin issues that you're facing, to consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. In fact, when those temptations come your way, and we all face them, right? Literally to say, listen, I am dead to sin. I am, I'm dead to that, and I am alive to Christ. No matter whether it be your expressions of anger or pride or your arrogance or your materialism or your lust that just suddenly starts raging, whatever it might be, you have to recognize you're a new creature in Christ, and that's what the gospel reveals. The gospel reveals that believers are dead to sin because they've been made alive in Christ, and you are literally a new creature. You don't have two natures. You have one nature. You are a new creature in Christ, a new creation. It's kind of like this. You once were a tadpole, 
but you've now become a frog. And as fun as it was to be a slimy little cleat creature kind of floating around in the little pond there, right? You have been changed. You now can hop around. You can be water and on land. In fact, you were on my patio last night. You almost made it into my house, right? Because you're a frog, and it's so much better to be a frog than a tadpole, right? You're a new creature in Christ. You can't go back. You have a complete new orientation. You're literally new because you've been united with Christ. Or you once were like a caterpillar, slimy, crawling around, maybe colorful, make a big mess when you get run over by a bike, things like that, right? But now you are a butterfly. You have the capacity to fly. You are free. You've been literally changed, transformed. You are a new creature in Christ. You can't go back to being the caterpillar because you've been made alive in Christ. So how is it that we really grow? What does a growth mindset look like in the life of a Christian? Well, you're going to find the very first uh, aspect of this, beginning in verse 12 through the halfway through verse 13, the mindset of a growing Christian is that they are denying sin. They deny sin. They recognize that sin stagnates, if not strangles, your spiritual development. So look what he says. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. What he's saying is, sin used to be the ruling monarch of your life. Prior to knowing Christ, or if you've come here and you don't know Christ yet, sin reigns in your life. It owns you. It dominates you. It controls your behavior. And you really don't have the capacity to fight it. It appeals to your fleshly nature. You don't have the capacity that you need from God to even ward it off. And that explains a lot of your behavior. It explains a lot of what runs through your mind, things that come through your heart, in, out your mouth. But now you fight against it, and you have the capacity to do so because you're a new creature in Christ. Even though sin used to be the ruling monarch, it, cannot lo- it can't own you anymore because you're now owned by Christ. But it can try to find, try any foothold it can into your life. It wants you to obey its voice. It's kind of like sin's being personified here. And Peter makes a similar statement saying, you, once were, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for God's own possession. But then he goes on to say, but I urge you as aliens and strangers, make no, abstain from fleshly lust and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. You got to fight against it and say no. You literally deny sin. And he says, deny sin in your mortal body. That refers to the entirety of your being starting first and foremost with your mind. You literally deny it. You're dead to it, and you think of it that way. And when he goes on to talk about uh, your mortal body so that you obey its lust, you do not allow sin to reign. He says, verse 13, and do not go presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. You see, what happens is when you and I are united with Christ, we're a new creature. But residing within us, in our fleshly nature, is a propensity and even still a desire to sin. It would be absolutely wonderful that if we placed our faith in Christ and we were free and completely emancipated from any sort of temptation. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, no temptation to sin and no sin. However, even though that will be true of us when we pass from this life to the next and we will literally be emancipated from our flesh, 
God will give us a body fit for eternity that will endure forever, allow us to enjoy the capacities of an eternal life and eternal heaven, we will never once again struggle with sin. But in this life, we do. And we have this propensity, it's a sinful propensity and desire to do just that. And so Satan knows that he cannot steal your salvation or your soul, that your eternity is secure. But he does believe, and is actually, frankly, quite successful in robbing you of your joy, neutralizing your effectiveness, and unsettling your peace. In fact, he's a master at it. Do you remember the very first time that sin actually occurred in the Bible, where it's actually referenced as sin? Anybody know where it is? If you say Genesis, that's always a good guess, right? The book of beginnings. Genesis chapter 4. Do you remember the situation? The Lord himself appeared to Cain, all right? You know, in Cain and Abel, they brought their offerings, but Cain's heart was totally not right with God. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, what? Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And that's how sin works. It literally wants to pounce on you, own you, be involved in your life. Even from the very beginning, God is saying, you've got to master it. And you can't in your own abilities. That's why you and I need Christ. Paul understood this in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He says, I want you to know something about me. I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I tell you about the gospel and the riches of Christ, but you need to know that I face the same fight and struggle like you do. And I've got to even discipline myself. Our flesh, it doesn't care how much Bible you know, how many verses you've memorized. You know what? Your flesh completely doesn't care about the fact that you're at church today. This is great. Here you are worshiping with God's people. You got the book open, the Bible open. Your flesh wants to get back to sinning. And so as soon as you leave these, this, walk out those doors and leave this auditorium, guess what? It wants to kick in. You haven't let me have influence in your life anymore. And so it's going to kick into high gear, into overdrive, whether it be anger, jealousy, lust. It, it never gives up. And you under, need to understand that. If you're going to have a growth mindset when it comes to your spiritual life, you've got to deny sin. I heard Howard Hendricks, uh, he apparently asked Dr. Lewis Berry Schaefer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary and and the first president. And Schaefer was getting up there in years, and Hendricks asked him, Dr. Schaefer, uh, do you finally get to a time where you no longer struggle with lust? And Schaefer turned to him and said, well, it's not at 80 Okay? And we'd love to think like, ah, oh, if I could just get to 65, right? I get my little card, and I get discounts, and I never struggle with sin, especially lust. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But does it happen that way? It doesn't. You see, you need to understand that you've got to make a decision. That's why he says, verse 13, do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And that word members is literally like, means like parts, like parts of your body, like your mind, eyes, mouth, ears, arms, hands, feet, legs, your body. You do not present your body in any way, shape, or form to just like, I just think I'll just go with this temptation, this lust, this feels good right now. I'm very interested in this scenario. No, you consider yourself to be dead 
to sin. Now, Paul isn't saying that you couldn't struggle with sin or maybe even fall into some habitual sin. But what he is making clear is that sin can no longer be your lifestyle. You will develop, if you are in Christ, a distaste for it. And you're going to see a diminishing influence of sin because you see a growing presence and influence of Christ. So what you need to do is you need to put sin on ice. And ICE is just a simple little acronym I've got that I'm just giving to you. This is what you need to do when it comes to sin. Identify it, confess it, and you need to completely eliminate it. Now, sin shows up everywhere, right? It shows up in your thinking, your relationships, perspective, entertainment, work, home, attitudes, right? It's everywhere. And what does it look like? Well, jealousy, gossip. Materialism, lust, anger, gluttony, lying, stealing, slandering. It's everywhere. And some of you are like, how did you know that about me? Were you in my house? No. We are all alike. We're all cut from the same bolt of cloth. We all struggle with the exact same things. And so what you want to do is you want to lead a revolt against sin. You identify it. Any personal weakness, when you see a temptation and you're tempted, you could actually call it biting into this would be sin. And I'm dead to that. But you, you recognize temptations and you say to yourself, this is a temptation. Whether it be a person, uh, a certain place, something you're, uh, you're watching, some environment that you're in, identify it is the first step. The second thing is to confess. If you have sinned, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, and that word confess literally means to agree. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You agree with God that you don't want anything separating that fellowship. You can never be separated permanently because you have eternal security because you're in Christ. But your fellowship can experience some breakdowns. God says, confess it before me. I want you to experience the fullness of joy and love. And then finally, you eliminate it. You reject it. You confront sinful desires. You practice self-control and restraint. You stay away from anything that is tempting you and alluring you to sin. Any person, anything, any TV show, whether it be your computer monitor, any scenario, you got to take your spiritual life serious. And if you really want to grow, you want a growth mindset, you'll do exactly what Paul says. Now, It's interesting, um, humans actually develop tolerance, and we kind of set bars at different places as to what is permissible and what we're going to have to radically deal with. There has been some research done uh, in March 2009. Uh, They actually researched adult responses to different pests, rodents, bugs, as to when, at what point, are they going to actually hire an exterminator, use their hard-earned cash, and they'll deal with it. What will they put up with, and where will they draw the line? This is pretty interesting stuff. So they found that for 24% of adults, one in four, they're going to pay for an exterminator to kill spiders, okay? Or 27% to annihilate ants. So you might want to consider, like, if you've got ants in your house, like, eh, it's not a big deal, I can work with it, or like, no, the exterminator, we're, we're done with the ants, I'm sorry. Where is it for you? If you want to find out where you're at in the spectrum, there's some other bugs that seem to have a much stronger uh, percentage of people, adults, that respond. For instance, 56% 56 of adults will pay for an exterminator to banish bed bugs, okay? They're just like, okay, I'll live with the ants, but man, 
these bed bugs are leaving all these little dots on my body. I hate it. Okay, I'm, that's it. I am going to hire an exterminator. Or 56% will get rid of rodents, okay? Like little mice and rats, okay? That's it. I am going to get rid of these ones for all. The other half are like, meh, you know, so what if they're in running around in my house and eating my bread and stuff like that? And they're going to live with that, which is pretty interesting if you think about it. And then 58% cockroaches, okay, that's it. We got cockroaches. 58% of the adults are going to deal with it. But then there is, there is one particular pest that elicits a lot of response. And there are 80% of adults, about 9 out of 10, are willing to pay to terminate termites, okay? You can eat my body, you can eat my food, you can be running around in my house, but as soon as you start eating my house, okay, that's it. I draw the line, and I'm going to hire an exterminator. You see, we all have different lines, and some of you are like, okay, even the termites, I don't care if the termites eat my house. We all have different lines. Why don't you take that at a spiritual level? Where do you draw the line when it comes to sin? as to what you're going to allow. What spiritual ants, termites, where, where, do you, where do you draw the line? If you, like, need a little help kind of putting this into perspective, would you say, you know what, listen, I would not steal, man. I, I would not steal. That would honor God. But you actually do lie. You lie on occasion, especially when it could make you look good and you don't think anybody could find out, or you lie to cover your tail, Right? Learned it as a kid, you're perfected as an adult. Where do you draw the line? Or for instance, you'd say, you know what? I, I would not commit actual physical adultery. I wouldn't do that. But on the other hand, you've got a completely different standard when it comes to like pornography or what sort of entertainment you feel like, oh, this is work. As long as no one knows about this, I'm fine with this. Where do you draw the line? Um, or like, let me ask you this. You will not physically go out and hit someone. Oh, no, I wouldn't do that. That would not make God happy for me hitting people. Maybe before Christ you were hitting people, but not now. But I will, though. I will gossip. And I'll slander someone. In fact, I'm real good at it. I watch my parents. I watch how they could tear people up. And I've gotten pretty good at myself. Let me ask you, are there sins that are bugging you? Are you making room for some sins that are literally eating you alive? When Paul says here is that you and I, we have got to deny sin. Do you really want to grow in Christ? You need to understand, though sin cannot dominate you, it is like guerrilla warfare, and it is looking to have entrance into your life anywhere, any place. It will come at some of the most unexpected of times, these temptations to do what is wrong. If you're going to grow in Christ, you've got to have a mindset, deny sin. Now, in case you think that, well, the Christian life is all about saying one word, don't you'd be sadly mistaken. Because if you really want to grow in Christ, not only do you deny sin, though, you devote yourself to Christ. You literally displace sin through having a growing devotion to Christ. And notice what he says in the text here. Look at verse 13. He says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness, but what? But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You literally present your life, everything about you, to God. Have you done that? Do you even think this way? Like, for instance, your mind. Have you given it fully over to God? Your hands, ears, eyes, mouth, legs, feet. Do you see yourself fully given over to God? Those with the growth mindset, those who are growing in Christ, 
There is a devotion to him, and they see every aspect of their being as given over to God. Not only all of who they are, but at all times. It's not like, well, at church, I'll be given over to God, but, you know, hey, come Friday night, it'll be another story. No. You are, if you're going to grow and mature, if you really understand what it means to be declared righteous with the living God, to be justified by faith, you will see the right thing is to see all of my life given over devotion to him. And you're like, well, wait a second here. Why does God care about my body? Why can't God just be content with my soul, okay? He saves me, he rescues my soul, and I move into eternity, and he'll give me a new body. Why in the world is he concerned about my body? Let me give you three reasons. Well, first of all, he created you. Did you know that? He made you just the way you are. You might not want to be resenting yourself so much because he actually designed you and created you. He owns you. He made you for himself. Let me give you another reason. The believer's body is God's temple. Did you know that? He actually resides in your life. He has given his Holy Spirit, and he lives in human lives. You are a visible expression of God, and your life, your body, is literally a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the, the Spirit of God resides within you. And let me give you one other reason. Your body is God's tool and God's instrument or God's weapon. God intends to do his work oftentimes through his people whom he possesses and owns and has redeemed. And he does so through your human body. I mean, think about all the things that God accomplishes through his people. He does so through human bodies, words, eyes, mouths, legs, feet, people going this way, helping hands, doing things with your life. You might want to actually take care of your body. You only get one. Yeah, I know you can get the knee replacement, the hip replacement, stuff. that's actually no fun. And you can do those things, and that's great. You can do that. But you need to realize that you've been given a body. You want to take care of it because God wants all of you, not just part of you, all of you. And it's very interesting. When you sin, it affects everything about you. Remember the classic example? We've talked about this before, David and his sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And David engages all of his senses. He even writes with his hand a letter to actually get Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed and to show you just how deep sin can take you, how quickly a man of God can fall down. He actually writes that letter and he has Uriah take his own death sentence to the front lines to get himself killed. Is that wicked and warped? Does anybody have a problem with that? I sure do. That really bothers me. How did that get there? Because sin, sin can take you places you never thought it would. It's because you didn't take it seriously, nor did you find yourself given over to God, devoted to him. And it's interesting, when, when David is confronted with his sin, he writes about his experiences to God. And in Psalm 51, David covers all these aspects, his mind, his ears, his body, his heart, his lips, and his mouth, all are referenced in Psalm 51. It's no wonder when he writes the beginning, he says, God, in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. All of me, God, because sin affects every aspect of your being. You know, your life, my life, is kind of like a game jersey. Now, if you've played sports, and I see some of you smile, because you even see a game jersey, it makes you excited. And there is just something about a game jersey that, like, you feel more powerful. I remember the first time 
that I got a real jersey, okay? I was a junior high kid running on the high school team. Man, I felt 10 seconds faster just by holding the thing. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, this is great. But no one, if you have a jersey, no one would use your jersey to like mow the yard. Would you do yard work with your jersey? No. Fixing the car? Are you going to wear your jersey? No. When do you wear your jersey? When do you wear it? Game time, right? You wear your jersey for game time because it has a special, unique purpose. Well, guess what? You and I are clothed with the character of Christ. He has brought us into his family. We are clothed with his righteousness. We are in Christ. We are in the game. And we are on his team. And everything about our life is meant to be dedicated to holiness. We are devoted to him. That is why we are denying sin. And so whatever you do during the day, whether you're working at home or you've got a job, you're in the community, you're on vacation, you're out golfing, you're doing ministry— I want you to see yourself as devoted to Christ. Try it. It'll change everything about you. It'll change how you go about your day and even the decisions of your, that you make because you see yourself devoted to the living God. And that is, by the way, the mindset of a growing Christian. They are denying sin, and they are devoting themselves to Christ. And there is one other thing that you need to know, and this is so very freeing. If you really want to have a growth mindset— Look at verse 14. You depend upon grace. Verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Just in case we get overbalanced with the imperatives, thinking like, oh man, it's all up to me to make this happen, God once more comes through with the indicative, and he makes you a promise. Look at what he says. I put a mark by this because I never want to forget this. Verse 14. Sin promise, shall not be master over you. You are no longer dominated by the ruling force of sin. Why? Because you're not under the law anymore. You're now under grace. All the law did, its demands, it just showed us how great of a need that we are for Christ. It actually became like a curse upon us because no one could follow the law completely, wholeheartedly, right? We, the Ten Commandments, We're trying to get them out of our school system. We don't even want to see them anymore because guess what? They remind us we can't do it. And that we are not under a system of requirements. We don't have to live under a fear of failing. That is why God has given us a Savior. And this is what revolutionizes our lives. Grace. Grace. What is grace? Grace is that the unearned resources that come through our relationship with Christ. Grace is the unmerited favor of God and the empowering presence he gives to us that we can not only overcome sin, but experience the joy and the wonders of knowing the living God. Like one lady was telling me after first service, she has grown so much since she's been here because of understanding grace. Literally, when you understand that God loves you unconditionally, no matter what you've done, where you've been, even how you're at right now, He loves you unconditionally. Your lives flourish in grace. God doesn't motivate his people by fear. You oughta, you better do this, or I'm done with you. You know what he does? He helps reinforce your heart that I love you unconditionally, tremendously. Nothing can separate you from me. I love you in eternity. 
You're going to find out how much I love you when you pass from this life. But I want you to believe. I want you to know forgiveness, hope, grace, renewal, restoration. And God's grace comes in a variety of different ways. It comes through his people. It comes through his word. It comes through his very presence. It comes by his spirit. And so just like John wrote, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were what? They were realized through whom? Jesus Christ. You see, to know Christ is to know grace. You're not on a performance-based standard with God. He actually loves you unconditionally. He wants you to enjoy him and the fullness of what it means to be in Christ. And that really is the secret of grace. The secret of grace is that it can be well with our soul, even when it is frayed around the edges, even when life is difficult and rough. Do you know why? Because we have the grace of the Lord Jesus. He is with us. And you know, God is in the process of helping you grow and develop and mature in grace. No matter where you're at on the spectrum, whether you're a brand new believer or maybe you've been a believer sometime and you're just now starting to understand grace, God is in the process of developing you and having you flourish. It's kind of like, uh, like having a piano, okay? And if you get a, like a brand new piano, uh, one of the things, it's great, but you're going to need a piano tuner. And you need a piano tuner throughout the entire life of your piano if it's going to play glorious music. See, a piano tuner, I mean, these are trained technicians. And it, sometimes they have to make the hammers have just a little, they have to be a little bit harder. And so they actually have this uh, liquid that they put on there and it makes it just a little bit harder and then sometimes it's too sharp, it's too hard, and so they have like this little pin-like instrument, and they actually kind of point those hammers, point it, pick at them a little bit, and it softens it up ever so lightly. But what it does is it allows the piano to make beautiful music. And, and the piano technician isn't like a one-time visit, and like, that's it. Throughout the entire life, after all those recitals and all that practice and all those concerts, the piano always receives the care and the attention of the master technician. And that's what God does with us with grace. He is always addressing the issues. What needs to be addressed here? What do you need to receive more of? What do you need to know more? What do I need to address in your heart now at this present time? And not only is he the master technician when it comes to pianos, he is the master pianist. And he is like playing his music through your life. And so that's why we have to have a growth mindset. That's why we've got to be denying sin and devoting ourselves to Christ because we're dependent upon grace and God is accomplishing his work through our lives. Now, what if I were to tell you that right after service, uh, there is a billionaire that is going to greet you in that foyer and he or she is going to tell you this. I am going to deposit $100 million into your personal account and that is after taxes. I want you to experience a wealth beyond anything that you'd ever imagine. I mean, could you imagine what that would be like? And like, I mean, if anybody would like to try that with me, you certainly can, okay? I mean, I would, I'm always into new things, and I'd love to teach you. What would you do, though? I mean, like, that you're like, what? How, how, what would that look like? Let's just try this on for a size. What would it look like if someone actually did that to you? What would, how would you respond? Well, probably on Monday, you'd actually like, wouldn't you check in with your bank? And you would want to know, like, well, did this really happen? Or is this person just, like, wanting me to feel really good about something for, like, 24 hours? And, yeah, the reality is I don't have any money, right? But you'd, and you'd check with someone, and it probably wouldn't be just, like, anybody at the bank. Like, I need to speak with a president. And you find out, like, do I really have $100 million? And what if, indeed, ab- absolutely, sir, you do. 
Oh, wow. So you'd know it. And then, then what would you do? Well, like for us, we're kind of on this little Quicken program at home. You know, we got that little financial accounting deal there. And so we would put the entry $100 million. I've never done anything like that. I would imagine the program might short out or something like that. But I mean, to have all those zeros, can you imagine what that would look like? We need more space, Karina, in the deposit category. We got a lot of money. And then you know what I'd start doing? Not only would I know the truth and I'd actually consider the implications of it, but I'd actually start living in it. I'd start acting upon my new position. I'd, I would be so awed with God and his graciousness that that happened. I would write a very substantial check to the church. Phase one, two, and three. Phase one's paid for, two and three, they are done. There are dreams that I'd have for this church of, of things that we could do and ministries, ministries that we could have. Guess what? I would fund all of those with a huge smile on my face. And then I'd find some of my missionaries and ministries that we support, and we're going to help them. And then I would try to get used to this new form of wealth. I mean, people that I would just love to bless. You want an adoption? I would quietly help. You need a new car? Guess what? Here it is. I mean, wouldn't that be cool if you had these kind of resources? Wouldn't that be awesome how your life would be changed if you actually saw that you had it and started living with it? Well, let me tell you, far better than just some money, God has given us riches in Christ. And you are incredibly rich in him. Not talking about money, finances, so much as I'm talking about that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You literally have the riches of relationship with Christ. And that frees us. You can live free. You can enjoy God. You can enjoy people. You can appropriate it. You can live in it. And God wants you to do that. You're a new creature in Christ. He wants you to depend fully on his grace. Let's see what God can do through you. And so you're going to find this. The depth of our souls is shaped by the direction of our lives. Which is it going to be for you? Fixed mindset or growth? Go with a growth mindset. Deny sin. You want to devote yourself to Christ. And you want to depend upon grace. And friends, just like we talk about the vision of our church, As you grow deep in Christ, your life is going to branch out like a tree and you're going to bear fruit and seeds are going to fall. Life is meant, is going to be lived the way it was intended and God is going to be glorified through your life and in our midst. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing passage of scripture. And God, I pray that you would just completely reinforce in our hearts and minds what it means to be in Christ And if there's someone here who has never put their trust and faith in Christ, would they simply pray with me and say, God, I I turn from self and my self-centeredness and my sin, and I put my faith in Christ. I accept his forgiveness, and I ask you to fill and lead my life. And for all of us, Lord, would you do this work in our hearts? Help us to continue to grow and mature in Christ. May the principles and the truths of this passage that we see in Romans 6 be ours for a lifetime for your glory. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.